0: Good evening, everybody. Good to be with you. It's always, always good to be with God's family. In case you don't know me, my name is Chin. I am one of the pastors of Subi Church. And it's great to hear, Stephen, and great to hear from Ryan, your testimony as well. And one of the things that as a church that I am really thankful and most encouraged about uh, whenever, with compassion is, you know, the partnership that we have with the local churches to support these children and really through these children really change The whole community, uh, and that you know they are supported and given education. And so, one of the things I would love to encourage you to do, if you can, after the service, go and go to the table, ask questions, find out more about what compassion does. If you haven't already sponsored a child, let me encourage you to think about it, to pray about it, and again look at you know the the pictures of the children in on the table uh, and figure out if that's something that God is calling you to do to support these children, because. One of the things that we want to do is to be a church that's generous to be a church that wants to make gospel impact on the lives of people uh, particularly in this case through the ministry of compassion so before we go into the sermon let me say a quick prayer and thank god and pray for the ministry of compassion and for all of us as we hear from god please join me in prayer father god we thank you for the ministry of compassion we thank you for the difference that it has made in so many Children throughout the world, Lord, we thank you that they are gospel-centered, partnering with local churches and believers, and we do pray and ask that more and more people would be able to support this ministry, keeping faithful to the gospel commission, to the great commission, to preach the gospel, to make disciples of all nations, and through that, be able to make a difference in our lives and communities around the world. And we do ask for ourselves, as we think about these things, we do pray and ask that you help us to consider, to think about, to pray, whether we can support either more children or support for the very first time. Lord, we want to do it with intentionality. We want to do it knowing that this is what you desire of us. So, Father, we do ask that you help us do that. And now as we come to your word, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me start with this question. What is love? It's a question that many have asked over the centuries, and, you know, one of the things that Christians can ask as well. What do we understand about what love is? And because of the way that our culture has been talking about love in all aspects of our lives, You know, our understanding of love, sometimes, that's affected. And for many of us, when we think about love, we instinctively, instinctively, we think about love as sentimental emotion or something that happens in our hearts that involves our feelings. Or sometimes, you know, we think love is something like affirming and supporting everything about the other person. And one of the things that, you know, I do in pre-marriage counselling is to ask the couple, right? One of the first things I do, you know, you say that you love one another. Tell me what you mean by that. What do you mean when you say you love her? What do you mean when you say you love him? And sometimes in cases like this, the focus of the love when they answer is how the other person makes you feel when they're together. Love then, sometimes is, in this case, it's about how the other person makes you feel in their presence. What is love? And how Scripture talks about love. In particular, God's love. That's what we'll look at today in our passage. We will see what God has to say about that. So, as you know, we have been going through the book of Romans, and we've been looking at Romans chapter 8 for the past two weeks, and today we are looking at the last bit of Romans 8, the climax of what Paul has been talking about over the past few chapters. The peak of the mountain that Paul has been getting us to climb over the past few chapters. And from this mountaintop then what we can do is to survey and look at what Paul has been doing as he builds up to this. And from this mountaintop we will see the glorious aspect, the glorious love of God in Christ for us. And so we are going going to look at Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 8 verse 31. If you have your, your physical Bibles, you'll be good because you can look at the wider context of it. Uh, if you haven't brought that, that's okay. It will be on the screen behind me. So I'm going to read that passage. And if you are able, let me invite you to stand as I read from Romans chapter 8, verse 31 onward. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in a response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You may be seated. As you can see, it's not a very long passage, but as I read through it, hopefully one of the things that you can sense is that you sense Paul's excitement and Paul's affection as he talks about these things. Right? Look at verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? These things that he has been talking about over the past few chapters. And I do believe he's talking all the way back since Romans chapter 3, verse 21 onwards. Right? From 321 onwards, what Paul has been doing is he's been declaring that we are justified by faith alone. Right, despite all our sinfulness, despite the wrath that we deserve from God, God justifies us through faith alone in Christ alone. And this justification by faith alone is not something new, something that is already there in the Old Testament. And this also means that while we were born into the realm of Adam, because of the work of Christ, we are now in the realm of Christ, under the hatred of Christ. So we were under sin and death, In slavery to our flesh, but through Christ, we are rescued from that realm, from that dominion. And now, we're in a kingdom where grace rules, in a kingdom where Christ is there. Christ is the king of this kingdom. And in this realm, as we saw from a few weeks back, we are led by the Spirit of God. We are the children of God. And as we saw from last week, that even though we go through suffering in our weaknesses, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf groans together with us through our sufferings. God has done all these great things for us. All these great things. What then shall we say in response to all these things? Verse 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's the main theme of our passage. God is for us. Right, the God of the universe, eternally power, in control, all things, this God is for us. And if this God is for us, who can be against us? What, what is there in all creation that can stand against us if this God is for us? Nothing. And that's why he brings out, over the next few verses, two main points about what this means. If God is for us, what does it mean for us? Number one, point number one, verse 32 to 34. No one can condemn us. No one can condemn us. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him out for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Now, if God did not spare Jesus Christ, the Son of God, his own son, do you think he will withhold any blessing from us? No, of course, He's already given us the greatest treasure in all of the universe in the person of Christ. Of course, He will graciously give us all things. And this, will be, this is talking about what we will be receiving from God when the new creation comes. We'll be receiving, inheriting the new heavens, the new earth, new body, together with Christ forever. All the blessings that come from salvation will be with us, will be given to us. God doesn't hold anything back from us. He's already given us His Son. Why would He hold anything back? And that means no one can come to us and accuse us of being unworthy of receiving God's blessing. And that's Paul's point here. No one can condemn us. Look at verse 33 onwards. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. God the judge has already justified us, he's already declared us to be righteous. If God the judge has already done that, who can come to us and condemn us? Well, no one. Christ Jesus, he died and rose again. Not only that, now he's at the right hand of God, advocating, interceding for us. And as you can see, it goes all the way back to Romans 3.21. Through the atonement of Christ, received by faith alone, we are justified. And now we have Christ before God as our advocate. I mean, we, we can't get a better lawyer than Jesus, is it? He is now before God, representing us. The verdict has already been given because of what Christ has done. No one can condemn us. No one can condemn us. Now, why is Paul saying this? Why is he bringing this up? Well, because sometimes we get accusations of our unworthiness of our salvation from different places. This condemnation, sometimes it can come from within us, inside of ourselves, Or it can come from outside of us, from other people. Let me give you a few obvious examples first, then sometimes a little bit more less obvious. And it's not surprising that we are condemned from many parts of our world today for our views, for our beliefs, particularly in our views of sexuality. People don't like what we believe. People don't like what we hold to. And Christians have been labeled and called many different names we've been called bigots we've been called intolerant we've been called unloving judgmental etc 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 and to be fair some christians sometimes those labels are justified but for many christians for many christians where their desire really is only to be faithful to the scriptures faithful to what god has revealed these labels this name calling can be a source of anguish and pain who likes to be called those things Nobody likes to be condemned by other people. But before God, do they have any case against us? No, they don't. No one can condemn us because God has justified us in Christ. We stand before God righteous because of what Christ has done. Who will bring any charge against us? God himself has justified us what happens when Satan himself comes and accuses us? Sometimes he does that through people. Sometimes he does that through our own self-talk about how we think, about how we talk about ourselves. <clears throat> when he comes to us, he brings accusations against us. He will say, you're such an unworthy person, such an unlovely person. God cannot possibly be pleased with someone like you. And maybe that's exactly how you think about yourself. Maybe there's some of you here who are condemning yourselves because of what you have done, because what has happened to you, and as a result, you feel unworthy of God's love. You feel deep down inside of you of your own sinfulness, of your own shame, and you think to yourself, how can anyone love someone like me? How can God love me? And then Satan uses that and to feel your thoughts to cause you to doubt God's goodness. And one famous example in history in which this has happened to is Martin Luther. And in his writings, he often talks about his experience of Satan coming to him and accusing him and condemning him. And to Luther, Satan was a constant tormentor in his life. He said this in one of his writings. The devil plagues me at times too creating such a tempest and fire over a forgivable sin that I find I do not know what to do. Those are his tactics with sin. He's a virtuoso and a champion when it comes to sin and death, reproaching a person in a very masterful manner. And that might be exactly what's happening to you. some of you here. You cannot move past your sin. You cannot move past the shame of something that happened to you. Right? Maybe you can't move past your family issues, your your divorce, something that happened to you and you feel shame constantly from that? Or you feel shame and guilt about a sin that you committed many years ago? Or maybe you feel that you could have and should have been better parents to your children or a better child to your parents or a better husband to your wife or a better wife to your husband or a better friend. But what Satan does is he takes anything and everything and uses that to condemn us. And sometimes Satan doesn't even have to do anything because we would do that ourselves. We feel unworthy of God's love, shameful, riddled with guilt and even though we repented, we try our hardest, we still feel like we haven't done enough and we condemn ourselves. We say to ourselves, Sir, I'm not good enough. I should be better. I can be better. I wish I was better. I wish I did things differently and every time we do that our sense of guilt increases and we condemn ourselves but what do we do at that point listen to what Luther says this is what he tells us to do so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell tell him this I admit I deserve death and hell what of it For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I will be also. And so what do we do? We say to Satan, or we say to ourselves, no one can condemn me because God has justified me in Christ. Christ is my advocate before God. He has died, He has rose again for my justification. No one can condemn me because God has justified me. Who can be against us? Who, can, who will bring any charge against God's elect? God is the one who justified us. No one can condemn us. Christ intercedes for us. No one can condemn us, not even ourselves. God is for us. And so on days that are particularly hard on days where you struggle with these things in your mind, where you struggle from all kinds of accusations thrown at you from the outside world because of your Christian faith, be you reminded of the truth of this passage. God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? No one can condemn us. There's a second point that Paul brings up. If God is for us, nothing can separate us from God. Nothing can separate us from God. That's from verse 35 to the end. See, after Paul talks about how no one can bring any charges against us, or any accusations against God's people, he goes on to talk about our situations, the circumstances of our lives. No situation, no circumstance in our lives will ever be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Look at verse 35 and 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Nothing that happens here on earth can separate us from God. And during the times when we are going through suffering, when we are going through hardship, it can be very easy very easy for us to be tempted to think that God doesn't care about us or God has abandoned us. But that cannot be further from the truth. No, no, those things do not separate us from the love of God. God's people throughout history has always endured suffering and hardship. This is not new. This is is a part and parcel of the Christian life. It's the part and parcel of life in general. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. We will go through suffering in this life. And suffering can be such a lonely experience. And through that experience, it can add to the anguish, add to the hardship. But the difference is knowing who is there with you through our suffering and hardships. See, Paul himself, he went through hardship and suffering. He describes this in 2 Corinthians. Let me just read a portion of it. 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 11, verse 24 onwards. This is what he says. This is what Paul went through. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was bitten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've labored and taught and I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've gone, often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. He knows what it means to suffer. And he goes on to quote Psalm 44, and in that psalm, this is the psalm where we read about God's people suffering because of their faith, going through persecution, facing death all day long. This is not new. And Paul has first-hand experience. This is not just a merely rhetorical question for him. He has experienced all these things. And coming through all these experiences, he can say, nothing can separate us from God. In fact, he goes further than that. In verse 37, he says, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, have you ever thought about what that means? More than conquerors. It's a bit of a strange saying, isn't it? How can someone be more than a conqueror? I mean, if if you are a conqueror, you've already defeated, vanquished your enemies. I mean, what, what more can you do? You already defeated your enemies. How can you defeat and conquer someone even more? But if you look at the context, as he talks about hardships and trials and troubles that Christians go through, from a humanly perspective, these things, or even from the perspective of Satan himself, these things should be the very things that pushes us away from God. Right? Christians are persecuted for their faith, so the logical thinking... Is that as Christians, as we're persecuted, we will stop following God, following Christ when that happens. And when we're going through hardship or trouble, the humanly way of thinking is to question, why does God allow all these things to happen to us, to cause us to doubt God? And if you remember from last week's sermon, if you remember that clip about Stephen Fry, that's the line of thinking that he uses to disprove or go against God. But instead of pushing us away from God, how have Christians across the centuries faced all these struggles and hardships? You see, these very things that are supposed to be pushing us away from God are the very things that pushes us towards God, closer to God. And what Christ does in the lives of a Christian is completely subvert the purposes of these thinkings, the logical thinking of these suffering. Right? The suffering and the persecution that people think will push us away from God, instead this exact thing pushes us closer to God. Right? It is in that way that we are more than conquerors. We don't only conquer the circumstance that we go through, but that same very circumstance pushes us to God. We are more than conquerors, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. And time and time and time again, we hear of testimonies of Christians doing exactly just that. And I'm sure you can think of many, many stories. And you know, one recent example, of course, as many of you will know, is Tim Keller. Diagnosed with pancreatic cancer more than three years ago. During an interview that he did, he talks about his, his experience of with terminal cancer, and how that actually focused his spiritual life. He said, the thing, I think the way that I handle imminent death is by fighting my sin and getting deeper communion with God. In another interview, he said that his cancer has made his prayer a much deeper experience with God. And he spends more time praying to God than he ever did few days before tim keller died his son tweeted about what he said he said i'm thankful for all the people who have prayed for me over the years i'm thankful for my family that loves me i'm thankful for the time that god has given me but i am ready to see jesus i can't wait to see jesus send me home and his last words according to his son there is no downside to me leaving not in the slightest." What else in all of creation can give someone that kind of assurance? What else? Cancer has ravaged so many people in our world, caused so much pain and anguish in families and loved ones. But in and through Christ, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. The very thing that's supposed to push us away from God causes us to go towards God. Nothing in creation can separate us from the love of God. And he ends this, Paul ends this section with what is in my mind one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. In Romans 38, 38, and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You cannot get any more comprehensive than that. And Paul is basically saying, list literally nothing, nothing in all of creation that can separate us from God's love. Nothing. And sometimes that passage has been used to defend what has been called the doctrine of once saved, always saved. And when people use that phrase or use that doctrine, sometimes Christians we have this particular image or scenario in mind. So they will think, you know, the doctrine works something like this, you know, where you have someone, let's give him the name Billy. And if your name Billy, just coincidence. But Billy, let's say you have Billy who said the sinner's prayer when he's 10 years old, and he said it with sincerity. But then over the next few years, he would attend church um, semi-regularly. But unfortunately, when he graduated from university, he completely stopped attending church and stopped believing in Christ. But as the doctrine goes, well, once saved, always saved, isn't it? Billy said the sinner prayer when he's 10 years old. So he's definitely saved. He's once saved, always saved. Doesn't really matter if his life hasn't changed. Doesn't really matter if he eventually stopped believing in God because once saved, always saved, isn't it? Well, that's one of the reasons why I don't really use that term very much. In fact, what I do prefer to use and what many scholars prefer to use and talk about is the term, the perseverance of the saints, or the perseverance of God in the saints. Now, the way to think about this is to take Romans 8 as a whole. Because when we believe in Christ, as we saw in the beginning of Romans 8, when we believe in Christ, we belong to Christ. God gives us His Spirit in us. We are led by the Spirit. We are children of God. And the Holy Spirit works in and through us to transform us to be more like Jesus. That's what we read at the beginning of Romans 8. We live according to the Spirit. And this is where our lives are changed as we follow Jesus, because God works in us through us by His Spirit. We do not stay the same person. And from last week, as we saw, this same Spirit works in us to help us in our weaknesses, in our sufferings. And it is through that work of God, by His Spirit in us, that He perseveres us in our faith. That's where the phrase, the perseverance of God in the saints, comes from. The idea is that once you are saved, once you believe in Jesus Christ, God sends His Spirit to indwell in us, and through the work of the Spirit in our lives, helps us to persevere in our faith until the end our lives are changed our lives are transformed and we live lives that bears witness to this change and that means the way we live our lives matter and it is through god's work in us that we persevere in our faith until the end so i like the phrase one saved always says where sometimes it implies that the way we live our lives does not matter. No, no, no. The more accurate phrase is the perseverance of God in the saints, where we see God's hands in our lives, transforming us, changing us, holding us tightly to himself. And as a result, we persevere on until the end. God's love towards us is not one where he affirms everything about us. God's love is infinitely more powerful than that. God's love changes and transforms us. And in the end, we are secure in our salvation, not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because Jesus holds tightly to us. And that's why Paul, when he comes to Romans 8, he can say with such an emphatic tone that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if God is for us, who can be against us? No one can condemn us. No one separates us from God. And one of the greatest example is the Apostle Paul himself. If you think about it, if you know anything about Paul's life, it seems like there's literally nothing that really phases Paul. Nothing phases him after he becomes a follower of God. He sets his life goal to go and preach the gospel wherever he can. Plenty of people have tried to stop him. They have failed. So, you know, Preach the gospel, no, no, you're not allowed to. We throw you in prison. What does Paul do? He goes and converts all the gods of the prison. And then he said, and you know what? That's it, I'm going to murder you, end your life. And Paul comes and says, well, to me, to to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's not afraid of dying. He's going to be with Jesus. And you know what? That's okay. I'm going to put you in house arrest. What happens? He goes and writes letters to different churches. About the gospel. In every and all situation Paul finds himself in, he turns it around, makes a situation to serve God's purpose. Nothing phases Paul. In other words, he is more than a conqueror. What are you going through in your life that you can, in some sense, turn it around to make it serve God's purpose, to draw you closer to God? How can you be more than a conqueror in the situation that you find your life in? And Lastly, most importantly, what we have to remember, that it is not our own strength, not our own willpower. Look at verse 37 again. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Only through Christ we can be more than conquerors. Because God himself, as we saw from last week, David preached on this. I'm going to repeat what he said. God himself took the greatest evil in all of human history. He conquered it through the death and resurrection of his son. Not only did God conquer it, he used the very thing that was the most evil thing at, at his core, the murder of the son of God. He made it the greatest saving act in all of history. Jesus was more than a conqueror through His death, through His resurrection, turning that violent evil act to be the one where there's the greatest story of redemption. And it is only through Christ that we can do the same. And as we focus on Christ, we can say, if this God is for us, if this God is for us, who can be against us? No one can condemn us. No one can separate us from God. And that's why Paul can end it with such an emphatic declaration that there's nothing, literally nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God that is Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me pray. Father God, we read this passage and our hearts are overjoyed our hearts are encouraged and blessed. To hear that we are more than conquerors through Christ, to hear that there's literally nothing in all of creation that can separate us from you, not because of how great we are, but because of how great you are, that you hold us tightly to yourself. And so as your people, this evening, as we read through this passage, raise our affection for Christ once more, to see how wonderful and glorious and amazing He is, how amazing you are, how amazing the Spirit is in working in and through us. And through all all these things, through the Gospel, we can be more than conquerors no matter what we're going through. And so, Father, we do ask and pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to Celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's not much I need to say, because in some sense, Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 39, has done the job for us. Let me read verse 38 and 39 once more. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we come to celebrate the Lord's Sabbath, that's what we're celebrating together with all of God's people, the all-powerful love of God in us, in Christ. And so as we partake of the, and drink of the elements, we're drinking and partaking of the grace of God in Christ. We're declaring to each other and to the world in some sense, no one can condemn us. No one can separate us from God's love in Christ. And so if you're here this evening, you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Be reminded, be blessed by the love of God once more. If you're here this evening, you're not a Christian, we ask that you remain seated. Please don't feel pressured to come to the front. But we do ask and pray that you will consider Jesus and what he has done for us. Let me invite the first few rows to stand and make your way to the front to receive the elements. Please hold the bread and hold the cup. We will drink and partake together at the end. Let us remember the body of Jesus given to us. Let's take together. And this is the blood of Christ which covers us. Let's drink together. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his death and resurrection. Through which now we can be your children. And through his love we are more than conquerors. All glory be to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.